the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Imagine if this happened again tonight. You know, they're voting in the Republican and Democrat primaries in New Hampshire right now as we speak, which is the first actual election that Donald Trump has been involved in since the 2020 election that was stolen from him. So let's say that Nikki Haley is winning tonight at 10 o'clock and we get a repeat of what it sounded like back in November of 2020. Remember this? A water pipe has broken in State Farm Arena. State Farm Arena is where they were counting the absentee ballots of Georgia's most populous county. And now the tabulation has stopped. It's Allegheny, which is Pittsburgh, but also Beaver, part of our county to county, mm. Butler and Westmoreland. They've all stopped counting for the night. They've gone to bed. They begin the process at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Good morning, Heather. They did have to press pause overnight. They will be back in a few short hours, expected to resume counting around 8.30 this morning. Fulton County is now going to stop counting at 10.30 p.m. And we'll resume their count at uh, tomorrow morning. They basically stopped counting tonight. They're going to start counting again in a few hours. It's already tomorrow morning, right? The election workers stopped counting those mail-in ballots at 10 o'clock. They will be back again tomorrow at 10 a.m. And Nevada says it stopped counting the votes yesterday, election day. But don't they don't say why. Why did you stop counting them? Here's where it gets really bizarre. Uh, Fulton County, most populous county, it is Atlanta. They just stopped counting at 10.30 p.m. They stopped counting their absentee ballots. They said they'd pick it up in the morning. But the counting in one of that state's biggest counties has stopped. Mike Armstrong is in Pennsylvania. Mike, we're talking about Allegheny County. That's the area around Pittsburgh. What's happening? Election workers in Allegheny County are back to work after pausing counting overnight. Butler County had to press pause on counting ballots. Nevada, meanwhile, has stopped counting votes until 9 a.m. on Thursday. Yeah, and how would the Demediacrats react tomorrow morning if after shutting down the vote, Trump pulled ahead and by lunchtime was declared the winner. They'd find uh, something to indict Trump on, Trump on by dinnertime, probably. The question now is, will Nikki drop out by dinnertime? We'll see. When we come back, what's happening on the Texas border? Will the governor blink, or is he going to stand up to the feds? And what will it mean for the serious movement that's been going on for a while to have Texas secede from the union? We'll talk to the president of the Texas nationalist movement and in our second half hour just in case you don't think you're taxed enough the senate and this is including republicans in the senate are working on a carbon tax stick around now some people think uh, that a state seceding from the union is a crazy idea that disappeared in 1865 but The Texas nationalist movement has been calling for that for a while now, and it sounds less crazy all the time. Dan Miller is president of the uh, Texas nationalist movement. He joins us now. Dan, good to have you back. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me. So we have had you on before, but I I guess this is the first time we've had you on (laughs) during a direct confrontation between Texas and the federal government. So what's your take on uh, what's happening down there on the border at Eagle Pass? Well, you know, I, I hate to tell everyone I told you so, but there it is, right? Um, I mean, here's here's the bottom line. Uh, 
Texans, we've been making the case to Texans for quite some time that unless Texas becomes a self-governing independent nation, we're going to see more and more and more of the federal government encroachment on our sovereign rights as a state. Uh, and, and I think there is no clearer example than what we saw come down from the Supreme Court yesterday that essentially rubber-stamped the Biden administration's uh, assault on our southern border. And so it's clear, more clear than ever, that if Texas is going to ever secure our border, we're going to have to do so as a self-governing independent nation. What are some of the other things, before we get into more on the border thing and what's going to happen with that, um, what are some other examples that you could cite that would lead you to believe that you know that, that Texas needs to get out of the federal, get out of the United States? Well, look, it's it's been very clear that the case for Texas independence, and it's not just the border, it's not just immigration, it's uh, economics, it's the monetary policy, it's the fact that we overpay anywhere from 103 to 160 billion dollars annually into the federal system, that every federal dollar that comes into Texas comes out of a Texas taxpayer's pocket with strings attached. It's the uh, the continued encroachments on our freedom of speech, our freedom of assembly, our freedom of religion. Uh, you know, just just run down the list. And so, uh, you know, you and I could have a, a lengthy conversation about how the federal government, our relationship with the federal government continues to harm everyday Texans. Uh, but unfortunately, that would take up probably the next two or three hours. Yeah. And and how is Texas or is Texas different from other states? Could Could other states say that make the same case? Yeah, I think so. You know, we obviously look at these things from a Texas focus, but I, I think definitely other states could make the same case or at least substantially the same arguments that we're making, is that ultimately the people of our states uh, are are harmed by this continued relationship with the federal government. And, you know, if you want to get down to some wonkish economics, uh, all you have to do is look at federal regulatory accumulation, which has made everyone, on average, in every state about 85% poorer than they should be uh, because the federal government has never met a regulation that they don't like. And they, as they layer them year after year after year, it's created a 2% compression of GDP in the states that compounds annually. And so, um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, whether it's the debt, whether it's the border and immigration, whether it's any number of issues, trade imbalances, I mean, it, it runs the gamut. The fact of the matter is the federal system is terminally broken and it cannot be fixed. What should the governor, uh, Greg Abbott, do in response? Uh, he's already said he's still going to he's still going to uh, guard the Texas border and he's not going to give in. But what what should he do? from this point on? Well, we have to remember that the current situation is dealing with about a two-and-a-half-mile section of a 1,254-mile-long border with Mexico. So, you know, short of Texas, this side of it, the governor should expand the efforts of the state of Texas to continue to support, secure the border in the manner that has been, uh, you know, it's taking place right now in Eagle Pass. But we're we're calling on Governor Greg Abbott to place to call a special session to place the question of Texas independence in front of the Texas voters. Ultimately, we know that in Article One, Section Two of the Texas Constitution, it is reserved as an inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish our government in such manner as we may think expedient. And so, 
we know that according to Article One, Section 1 of the Texas Constitution, uh, which says that the perpetuity of the union depends on the right of local self-government unimpaired to all the states, the criteria has been met. But it's not ultimately up to Greg Abbott to make the decision about independence. This needs to go in front of the people of Texas. And so uh, we'll be uh, hand-delivering 170,000 signatures to Greg Abbott's office uh, in the coming days that are calling on him to do just that. Let's call a special session and let's give Texans a vote on their independence. And if you were to take a poll uh, today, especially today because of what's going on at the border, if you were to take a poll, what kind of numbers do you think you would see as far as support for this well look i don't i don't have to take a poll today i I know what third-party polling has shown and i know that the survey usa poll that was done back in the summer of last year or summer of 2022 when this wasn't going on showed that 60 percent of voters overall and 66 percent of likely voters here in texas would vote texas out if they had the opportunity to do so so I can only imagine, you know, when you're hovering at that, that uh, you know, six out of ten or, or two-thirds of voters uh, back in the summer of 2022 wanting independence, I can only imagine that that has probably notched up to three, three out of four voters right now. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next. Uh, have, have you noticed, has it been obvious, the increased uh, interest in your cause just in the last week or so since this has been going on? Well, yeah, I mean, it's um, there's no doubt about the the increased uh, interest because I think in, in the minds of many people, they've been able to to cross that final bridge in their in their minds and and be able to understand that look, this federal government uh, is not going to uh, act in the best interest of Texas. It's just not going to do it. And and frankly, this short of Texas, every solution that's positive including uh, positive that including what governor abbott's doing right now uh is a band-aid on a gunshot wound and and if we're going to really successfully secure our border uh turn this tide stop that uh incessant pipeline and the invasion of texas then we're going to have to do so as an independent nation and and that's been helpful i mean literally what's happened over the last 24 hours uh, has exposed the fact that the federal government and the Biden administration are more closely allied with human trafficking, sex trafficking, drug trafficking cartels on the Mexico side of the border than they are with states that are in their union. Yeah, here's the question I have. In the Supreme Court, I think conservatives might have been surprised, maybe not, that the um, the two of the supposedly conservative justices uh, voted against Texas on this. Um, uh, I'm, I'm just at some point, and, and there are people saying, you know, forget the Supreme Court. We're not listening to what they say. Is that kind of dangerous? Because, you know, you have a, you have a conservative court right now. Uh, if, if, if Texas says we're just ignoring what the Supreme Court says, what about, uh, if the Supreme Court down the road comes, um, comes out with a decision based on the Second Amendment? that the liberals don't like. And then they can say, well, they, you know, we don't care about the Supreme Court. At some point, the damage being done to the Supreme Court can hurt everybody, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think that's been done. I mean, you've had inconsistent, you've had inconsistent rulings from the Supreme Court for, well, really since the beginning of the union. But I think that the fact that we're, that you even had to ask that question 
points to the, the fundamental brokenness in the union. We, we literally have a situation right now where you have states that have wildly different worldviews about how they want to be governed. And we've seen every two to four years, the elections turned into this ridiculous punch and Judy show over who can uh, get control of the reins of the federal government and, and lord their positions and policies over everyone else. And, you know, what, what we're talking about is a different way to approach this and say, look, let California govern California, let New York govern New York, let Texas govern Texas, let every state govern itself and, and, and work with one another in a way that, frankly, that the founders and the framers first intended when they drafted the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, and everybody knows that the Democrats and their friends in the media, they hate the Electoral College. And they also, if, if, they, if the Democrats could get away with it today, they would pack the Supreme Court. Um, and do, do you think that the, these people who think and talk like that are aware that, that that could actually destroy the union because there are people out there who just would say enough's enough? Well, look, they've broken the union. I mean, to talk about it in the future tense is to ignore the reality of the situation today. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that through enormous amounts of, of political wrangling and federal overreach, what they've done is they've created a one-size-fits-none central government based out of Washington, D.C., that believes that it can govern every facet of our lives from what we say to what we do, and, and in turn, they can use those mechanisms of power that they have developed, those tentacles, that cancer that has spread from Washington, D.C. into the rest of the states to effectively undermine our sovereignty and our rights. And, and frankly, at the end of the day, if, as a people that believe in the concepts and principles of freedom and liberty, threaten our very existence. You know, we're in an existential crisis. People want to talk about it being a constitutional crisis, and it, it, it indeed is. But... This is really an existential crisis. We are now seeing a very clear fork in the road between what we believe and conceive of as America, the values, the principles of the rule of law, and a constitutional republic. That's one side of this fork in the road, and the other is the United States of America as a political and economic institution headed up by the federal government, which has proven itself to be an absolute 100% enemy of those principles that we believe of as America. And we're talking to Dan Miller. He's president of the Texas Nationalist Movement. Uh, you almost got a referendum, I understand, on the ballot for the Texas primary coming up in March, but then it didn't happen. What happened that it was not on, that it will not be on? Well, you had a, a Republican Party chairman, so just for, for those who are not familiar with it, there's a mechanism under Texas law that allows voters by petition to place a question on a party's primary ballot. On December the 11th, we delivered 142.75% of the required signatures uh, to the chairman, and he waited until the 28th of December to uh, concoct some ridiculous notion as to why he would not put it on the ballot. So uh, we're continuing on with litigation on that issue. Uh, but we fully intend, as I stated earlier, to take those petition signatures, particularly in light of what's happened, and deliver them to the governor's office with a demand for uh, a special session to place this issue on the ballot and let Texans decide our future. Well, um, a reluctance or resistance 
to a referendum on this subject would make me think that they're afraid. Because if you thought it was an absurd notion or a ridiculous extreme notion, then you would probably want to see it as a referendum so it could get beat 90 to 10. And you could say, see, in other words, you know, dismiss it. They, They don't think they can do that, do they? No, they don't. And, and look, this is this really highlights the battle, which is really not left versus right, red versus blue. It really is a battle between the, the people and, a, and an entrenched political establishment that does not want to give up power. And and they know, you know, the, the, the poll that I quoted you earlier, they know the same numbers that we do. If this goes on a ballot tomorrow, it wins, and it doesn't win by a little, it wins by a lot. And so they, they feel very comfortable sitting on the outside as a peanut gallery talking about how this is a fringe issue while ignoring the fact that, you know, we, we did almost one and a half times the number of signatures required by law. The Texas Nationalist Movement, outside of the two major political parties, is the single largest political advocacy organization in the state. Um, they ignore the poll numbers, and they continue to say that this is fringe and that no one believes in it. And our point has always been, look, whether you believe in it or not is irrelevant. Put it on the ballot, and then we'll find out we'll, we'll find out who's right. We'll see how you much know? how fringe it is, yeah. And so that's you know that's their resistance. They know ultimately independence referendums around the world over the last century have driven an average of eighty five percent voter turnout. Uh, and when you see those types of numbers in voter turnout, what that effectively means is the end of a political establishment who believes that we are too stupid to govern ourselves. i got a couple of minutes left here with Dan Miller, president of the Texas Nationalist Movement. So let's say that uh, the, governor, the governor would call a special session, and the legislature, I guess this is the way it would work, would vote to, um, to break from the union. What would you expect the federal government's reaction to be? What happens next? Well, we have to remember, we're not asking the legislature to make this decision for the people of Texas. We want them to put it to a vote of the people of Texas and let the people of Texas speak. If it is an action unilaterally by the governor or by the Texas legislature, uh, then what that does is it throws into question whether or not independence is truly the political will of the people of Texas. But if you have the people of Texas turn out with 85% voter turnout, and you have a you know a sixty to sixty six percent vote in favor of it. Uh, there's very little ultimately that the federal government can do, and and we highlight that process. We talk about what that process looks like and why it must be done this way um, at TexasNow.org. We created an entire website that answers every single question about this. Uh, and frankly, uh, it's time. It's time that the people of Texas had their voices heard on this issue. Could it be done peacefully? It can be, and ultimately that's what we're pursuing down here by putting it to a vote and then following an established process at the tail end of that, which involves constitutional issues, statutory issues, international covenants, treaties, and agreements, and finally negotiated issues with the federal government. We're pursuing a very deliberate and conscious process after that vote to make this happen. So Texans want to do this peacefully. Ultimately, that'll be a decision up to the federal government, and, and I could just I can tell you right now that if the federal government decided to invoke, um, you know, some, some sort of military response simply to the people of Texas voting and saying that they wanted to invoke their right of self-government, 
uh, then frankly, that tells you all you need to know about the federal government right there and why not just Texas, but every state should entertain leaving. Well, I'm, uh, the more I talk to you, Dan, the more sense you make. And you're sure not, uh, you sure don't sound like a fringe guy. You, you know your, uh, you know your business here and you, you have researched this and people need to listen to you. And I'm glad you were able to come on again today and I hope to have you on again soon. Thanks. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And let's go win. All right. That's Dan Miller, president of the Texas Nationalist Movement, making way too much sense. I'll be right back. Well, just in case you don't think we're taxed enough, uh, the Senate, that would be the United States Senate, and it's both Democrats and Republicans, uh, by the way, are moving toward a carbon tax. Sounds like something Al Gore would do. Diane Furchgoth-Roth is the director of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment at the Heritage Foundation. She's been looking at this, and she joins us now. Diana, thanks for coming on again. Great to be with you. So uh, whose idea is the providing reliable, objective, verifiable emissions intensity and transparency act? Uh, well, the idea came sponsored by Senators Kevin Kramer, who's a Republican from North Dakota, and Chris Coons, close to home, a Democrat from Delaware. And it's called the Providing Reliable, Objective, Verifiable Emissions Intensity and Transparency Act. And what it does is it would have the Energy Department do a study of the different carbon content and the different carbon used in the manufacture of different products. And that would be a precursor to being able to tax these products. So they do a study to find the carbon emissions... Uh, from lots of different products. What, what kind of products are we talking about? We're talking about cement. We're talking about construction, plastics, oil, gas. We're talking about all these different kinds of products. So is this the emissions required to produce these products? Is that the idea? I mean, the emissions produced uh, by, by making this stuff. Right, exactly, yes. Yes, they call them covered products, and what they want to do is uh, look at uh, the emissions that are required to produce these. Also, fertilizers, glass, hydrogen, iron and steel, batteries, petrochemicals, pulp and paper. There's a whole list of these kinds of things. Everything, basically. Right, exactly, yes. Everything that yeah. ma matters. Well, right. um, and what they're looking at is what they call the average product emission intensity of each category of these products. And who's looking at it and who's getting to decide which, I don't know, they gotta, who, who do they bring in to look at cement and come up with the numbers that they need to come up with? So it would be the Secretary of Energy who would be the lead person, and that individual uh, would set up some kind of commission in coordination with secretaries of other agencies, such as the Commerce Department, uh, the Trade Representative, the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, and all these groups. What happens when it, you see, what happens when uh, a cabinet agency does this is, 
they usually hire a group of outside people to do it because the people in their department they think are working enough as it is. <laughs> yeah, well, what you just they'll probably des- get an outside group to do it. Yeah, so what you just described is pretty scary. That, that, that's a lot of bureaucrats uh, involved and um, not a whole lot of um, control over them. Am I right? Um, exactly, yeah, yeah. And the idea is that once you have this data and it's written down in a study, then it's easy to take an amount of a tax per ton and say, hey, why don't we just have a tax on this? And since most people don't really understand it and the, they don't understand the extent to which the costs of the tax are going to be passed on to consumers, then there isn't so much objection. That's the problem. But I'm, t- I'm trying to imagine what the announcement would be like when, when this thing goes through and they say, we've just come up with a tax on everything. How's that going to go over? Yeah, they wouldn't say it's a tax on anything. Well, I know, but they'd that's, what, say, that's well, what they'd be the doing. Well, carbon stuff, they try and hide it. What they yeah. say is, oh, well, carbon is a nasty, dirty subject. They don't mention that you drink CO2 in your soda every day if you right. drink soda. Right. They just say, well, you know, we want less carbon, so we're going to put on a tax, and it's going to be on corporations. They say it's going to be on corporations so that uh, people don't object because they don't know that corporations just pass on the taxes directly to the individuals. Because corporations don't pay taxes, people do. So what they would do is try to hide it in some, you know, clean-sounding manner. Like, for example, when politicians want to raise taxes, they say it'll just be on the rich. And no one thinks of themselves as rich, so they don't think they're going to get the tax. But really, they do. Right. Um, And I was going to ask you this later, but since you brought it up, uh, you mentioned it uh, about CO2. There are some really smart people. I've had them here on my show. Uh, they're out there. They can prove to you that CO2 is a good thing. And I'm guessing that exactly. that's not going to change anybody's mind, and they won't even consider that. That's already a that's already an accepted fact by the people who are um, intent on getting this stuff through, is that, well, CO2 is evil, and we don't want to hear any, any, uh, any uh, pushback on that. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is a proxy. It's very similar to a value added tax. And you'll find the same people who are in favor of carbon taxes have said in the past, why don't we have a value added tax or Europe has a value added tax. And these are taxes just like a carbon tax would be an example of a tax that started very small. So people wouldn't notice. And then gradually it's ratcheted up. So these value added taxes started at perhaps two or three percent. And now in European countries, they're around 20% or more, and they're hidden in the price of the product. And it would be the same for a carbon tax. It wouldn't get spelled out at the bottom of your bill. You're paying this much for a carbon tax, the way it is for a sales tax. It would be hidden, so you wouldn't know that that's why things are getting gradually more expensive. And it would all be for nothing at all in terms of helping the planet, because even if America were to get rid of all fossil fuels right away, it would only make a difference of two-tenths of one degree centigrade by the year 2100, according to government models. Right. Now, as you mentioned, Europe is already doing this. How is it working out for them over there? like the story of uh, if you try and cook a frog by putting it in boiling water, it'll just jump out right away. Mm-hmm. But if you put it in cold water and warm the water gradually, uh, the frog doesn't notice the difference, and so it stays in the water and it's cooked. 
uh, Europe already has layers and layers of taxing, and they are not noticing, I believe, this particular tax because it's part of a whole panoply of taxes. But does the, the there's go ahead? Sorry, there's a lot of riots in Europe right now in Germany, Spain, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, and that's mainly about the EU's agriculture policies. There's big protests that farmers are being told they can't use chemical fertilizer and they have to cut down on numbers of animals. There's protests about that because it's very visible. They've kind of sneaked this little tax in, saying that this is there to protect them from imports from other countries and they're selling, they're marketing it as something that's good for them. So I don't read about protests from the carbon tax. I read more about protests from the agricultural policy that's also supposed to help the climate, even though it wouldn't. If I'm not mistaken, Canada's debating this right now, and they have a carbon tax. They put it in, didn't they? Uh, I, right, right. I believe uh, I believe that they are, yes, yes. But I'm not familiar with the Canadian carbon tax. Yeah, but, I just know that we shouldn't have a carbon tax here, yeah. just as we shouldn't have a value-added tax. Yeah, and I, I, the only thing I know about the, the one in Canada is that it's not popular. And um, I don't know how long they're going to be able to get away with it, but it's, it's got people upset up there. Um, so you point out, and we're talking to uh, Diana Furchgoth-Roth. She's the uh, director of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, you point out in your piece that a lot of conservatives like this. That's kind of surprising to me. Why do they like it? Uh, well, a lot of conservatives think that you can substitute one tax for another. So in theory, if you have a consumption tax rather than an income tax, you take away the income tax. That means people will work more. Because if you want to tax something, uh, you know that you get less of it. And so in theory, if you take uh, away the income tax and you substitute for that a consumption tax, such as a carbon tax or a value-added tax, you get a more efficient economy because people get taxed on what they buy rather than the amount that they work, and so they work more. The problem is that our Congress has never rolled back any tax instead of another. They just add one tax on top of another, just as in Europe. They didn't lower the income taxes. They kept them the same, and they added the value-added tax and the carbon tax on top of that. So I agree that if you're sitting at a university and you're doing calculations uh, on your computer or pen and pencil, uh, then yes, uh, the consumption tax might look better if you substitute it. But that's not how it happens in practice. Those of us who've worked in Washington for our whole careers uh, know that Congress doesn't roll back taxes. It just adds to them. But the only way that it could be sold to people is with the promise of that, correct? Uh, that's right, yeah, yeah. But you've seen that Congress just passes taxes at the very last moment as part of generally uh, a um, budget that has to go through by the 31st of December or something like that, or the government will shut down. They don't think about these things very carefully. And they attach a lot of opinion and deference to agencies. And the Supreme Court heard a case on that uh, earlier this month about whether agencies should have that much leeway to decide on different kinds of provisions. The Chevron case, right? The uh, the Chevron case, yes. And also when Congress does pass a clear bill, such as that the Inflation Reduction Act tax credit should just go to domestic industries, sometimes Treasury, in its regulations to interpret that tax, 
pace, plays fast and loose with it and allows foreign countries to have the benefit of the tax. Or, for example, you find that you can lease an electric vehicle rather than purchase it, and the domestic content regulations do not count. What do you, uh, what do you mean they don't count? That means that even if a car has been produced with foreign content in it, if you lease it, you still get the advantage of the tax credit. <laughs> uh, but that's probably a subject for another show, but that would be an interesting subject for listeners. Yeah, what hap- how they got around this. So what happens just to the price of gasoline and natural gas if this tax goes through? Everything with carbon on it, uh, such as uh, gasoline, natural gas, uh, those prices would go up, definitely. Yeah, but are we talking about, I think I saw in your piece, 44 cents a gallon, somebody said? Uh, uh, right, if, if it were a tax. So what the bill does is it just requires a study of the carbon intensity, but it hasn't mentioned a tax. It hasn't mentioned how much the tax would be. Uh, if it were a tax of uh, about $50 a ton, then gasoline would go up by $0.44 cents a gallon. But this bill does not mention a specific tax. It's just a precursor to a tax. It provides the information that you need in order to be able to levy a tax. So this thing is kind of moving through the Senate right now. It, it, they're in the early stages of it. It starts with the yeah, study, it's right? the committee. Yeah, it's past the committee stage, and the next thing it has to do is be voted on the floor of the Senate. Then if that happens, then it goes to the House, which hasn't passed it yet. Again, I I just have a hard time believing that the Republicans are going to be able to sell something like this. Uh, The only way is, is if they are able to trot out the old promises about having the other taxes disappear. And a good conservative doesn't believe that. Right. We have to hope that the Republicans in the House uh, just keep to their principles and do not vote something like this through. And um, what do you how how do you feel about the chances of this getting to that point? In Washington, it's always better to bet against the bill passes than bet that it does pass. So uh, I would expect that it would not get to that point. Well, if it doesn't get to that point, then um, what's the next? These people are intent on. Uh, getting rid of fossil fuels at this point, is is this just another attempt to do that? And then uh, if this doesn't work, they try you, something you are, else? Yeah, right. You're absolutely right. But the American people are really smart. And here our, our government was trying to push electric vehicles on them. They yeah. are fighting back. They're not buying electric vehicles as much as they were supposed to. The National Automobile Dealers Association sent a letter to President Biden complaining that not enough EVs were being purchased. Uh, Hertz is selling 20,000 electric vehicles because consumers do not want to rent them. Uh, And Ford has announced a cutback in its production of F-150 Lightning electric uh, pickup trucks. So the American people are smart. They're not getting pushed into things, even though the federal government Uh, is giving them a $7,500 tax credit for them and is paying the producers, GM, Ford, Stellantis, to set up uh, battery factories and EV factories. Yeah, we've had you on, Diana, to talk about electric vehicles before. You've done some good uh, pieces on that. Um, And uh, it's been in the news a lot lately because of this cold snap we've had. Um, What do you think this recent really bad 
a really cold weather uh, is doing to the cause or has done to the cause of the EV. Is it? Do you think it was a major blow? I think it was a major blow. I think people are seeing that these vehicles don't work in very cold weather. And even though one might not have very cold weather for much of the year, you don't want your car, say, not to work for even one week out of the year if you have to get to work. So I think that it is causing people to uh, wake up. It really is. And um, I guess we can only hope that they wake up and really just refuse to buy them. But how long can the government get away with pushing it when people are just saying no? Yeah, I think the government eventually is going to have to stop pushing it. Uh, plus, you have people who purchase them who say that they're not going to buy another one. Yeah. Because they've seen what happens and they say, well, my next car is going to be, you know, uh, uh, a regular pickup truck rather than electric. Plus, it's uh, about $20,000 cheaper. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, it's uh, what a what a just a, a fiasco they've created and they seem to be doubling down on it. We'll see where it goes. Uh, Diana, I really appreciate you coming on the show as always. Anytime. Great to be on your show. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, thank you. Diana Furchgoth-Roth from the Heritage Foundation. I'll be right back. Well, how about a happy birthday for Myron Cope? Myron's been dead for a while, but I think he's been he's been dead for, I don't know, he's, he, would, he died at 79. He was born on January 23rd. 1929, and I think he died at 79, so whenever that was, that's um, 50 years, uh, seven, uh, whatever, 79 years after that, when would that have been 20-something, about 10 years ago? Anyway, um, I just saw in here that um, his birthday was January 23rd, 1929. Of course, today's the 23rd, and uh, on Twitter, uh, at Vintage Steelers, someone wrote, on January 23rd, 1929, God gave us one Myron Sidney Koppelman. This man is, is in every conversation when talking about Pittsburgh sports icons. His voice was, quote, angelic if the angel smoked cigarettes. <laughs> and Myron smoked cigarettes a lot. But uh, I was uh, lucky enough to have uh, worked with Myron. Uh, he could be difficult at times, don't get me wrong. He was a pretty strong-willed guy. And uh, he was um, he was not always um, the greatest guy to work with, but uh, neither was I. So, you know, I'm, he'd probably tell you that. But I did get a chance to work with him. And actually, Myron heard me doing sports on KQV radio when he used to drive to work in 1977. And he, when Steve Zabriskie left Channel 4, uh, in December, Myron recommended me to the news director. He said, hey, listen to this guy coming in. You had to hire him. Listen to that. So I went in and I auditioned and I got the job. Uh, so I, I always have Myron to thank for that. But um, So just in the last uh, couple of days uh, up on at Steiger World, you can see, if you check it on Twitter, at Steiger World, Somebody has been putting up videos of me as a 30-year-old guy in 1979 introducing Myron Cope. And the stuff that I'm doing is nothing. It's just an intro. But you really ought to check it out and watch Myron Cope. It'll bring back some good memories. But uh, happy birthday to Myron. I'll talk to you tomorrow. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.